Our topic tonight is the origins of the papacy. Um, and I actually had created this topic before the events of the end of last year when actually uh, one of the two living popes at the time uh, passed away. So we have here kind of an image from the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI, uh, and when he, who had been the emeritus pope, died at the end of last year, he ended a decade of a very anomalous situation of having two living popes, um, one current pope and one emeritus pope, living kind of side by side, both continuing to use the papal name, continuing to dress in white, uh, hanging around in uh, papal properties and so forth. He ended that time period, and then he set a new precedent for having a pope actually preside at the funeral of his predecessor, something that I think has never happened in 2,000 years of uh, papal tradition, um, because in almost every case, uh, the past pope dies, and before you uh, can have to, has to be died and buried and so forth, usually before you actually pick the new pope. Uh, and so this was a rare, rare circumstance. So in 2013, the reason why that happened is Benedict XVI became the very first pope to resign his position since Gregory XII did so in the year 1415. In other words, um, that had been a lapse of 598 years uh, since the last time a pope had decided to do that. Uh, nevertheless, it does seem um, as we enter a new era of longevity where medical science is allowing people to live increasingly long lives, but on the other hand, um, at the extreme edge of those uh, years in their late, late, late 90s and their hundreds and so forth, um, a person's capacity to um, run an institution like the Roman Catholic Church is can somewhat be impaired, and I think Benedict foresaw that, and Francis, the current pope, has also uh, sort of suggested that he might be considering something of this, uh, following that precedent. If so, this may have established a very, um, I think, laudatory new precedent. You probably, people should be uh, doing these kind of retirements instead of living until the very end. Like, uh, it was more common in the past when longevity wasn't like this. So uh, another elective monarchy was, for example, um, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was emperor until somebody killed him, or the Doge of Venice, uh, elective monarchy, the um, Supreme Court justices in the United States. That as long as they're alive, they continue to uh, impose their opinions on, on U.S. law. <laughs> so, so, um, so the papacy is a unique institution. It is a sovereign monarchy that is nearly 2,000 years old. Uh, it is quite rare in that list of those. Um, some of the more famous monarchies, like the British monarchy, um, doesn't go back 2,000 years anyway. It at least has uh, you know a direct uh, predecessors going back to the Norman Conquest in 1066. Uh, the Normans are heirs to the Anglo-Saxon uh, kingdoms that go all the way back to the Kingdom of Wessex. So, so at best, you know, here we're talking about 1,400 years or so. The Japanese monarchy is somewhere in that same range, maybe a little longer in that kind of era. era. Um, but in any event, it's a, it's, there's not too many that are having this kind of longevity as an institution. So what is a pope? Where did the papacy come from? This is 
Jude Law as Pope in a TV show that I'm not sure is still going on that was called The Young Pope. So what's the word? So the Pope versus Popes. So the word Pope just derives from the Greek papas, meaning father. And so it was initially applied actually to all bishops, especially in the Greek East. And so it would have just been kind of a um, kind of a informal title, like you're calling a priest. You call priest father sometimes, or uh, father abbot, you know, or you know, mother abbess and so forth. So father and mother being kind of the spiritual father of an individual, um, let's say, monastic community or a diocese, a, the seat of a bishop, um, and so on. And so, but from kind of that just general title of generally calling somebody father, uh, the word pope itself, as it pulls into Latin, by um, the time of the central Middle Ages, by the 11th century, the title had really gotten in the West, in the Latin West, where people are speaking Latin as their um, lingua franca, as their international language. Um, It's reserved at this point for the Bishop of Rome. So originally, whatever, any any kind of leader, any bishop would have been able to have that title. Um, nevertheless, it continues to have be used outside of uh, the Latin West. And so, for example, uh, the Coptic bishop of Alexandria, uh, one of the uh, ancient patriarchal sees of Christianity, the patriarch of Alexandria, who is the... Um, in the same way that the popes are claimed to be the successors of St. Peter, the Coptic bishops are the successors of St. Mark, um, those guys also still use the title pope. And so the head of the Egyptian Orthodox Church, um, in this case at the time when I made the slide, it was uh, Shanuda III. He was the, uh, the current Coptic pope. And so the popes uh, or the bishops of uh, the uh, Egyptian Orthodox Church use that title. So back to the Roman popes, the popes are also the head of an actual internationally recognized country, uh, the Vatican State, a state that is uh, less than half a square kilometer, and yet nevertheless is, uh, like I say, generally recognized as an international country. That is not the case, for example, of other um, religious leaders. So the Dalai Lama, while uh, when he was born, was the uh, head of Tibet, you know, as a which was a, you know obviously an independent state. Um, that state has been occupied by the People's Republic of China, and the Dalai Lama has been in exile for almost all of his life. And so there is not a thing where they've taken a little state around the the holy capital of Lhasa in Tibet and made that into a uh, an independent state the way they've done for the papacy. So in other words, there's no other you know the the head the prophet of the um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon prophet, they have a state of the U.S., but they don't have an independent nation <laughs> the way. Uh, they have a, several senators in the United States Senate and so forth, but they don't have a whole country the way the, uh, the popes do. So Vatican City is, in fact, the remains of a much larger uh, uh, territory that was ruled by the popes called the Papal States, historically, and the popes became essentially recognized internationally as sovereign princes that were uh, in charge or the, 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 the total leaders of these states since the mid-8th century. So for a whole long time, um, they have been internationally recognized sovereign leaders. 
So although the papal states were actually dated to the donation of Constantine, so in other words, although you know you, they look back a much farther period, um, it's later proved once once the science, once the academic discipline of of textual uh, criticism got going, the donation of Constantine uh, was one of the very first really important documents that was proved. Um, in the early modern period, it was proved then to be a forgery. Um, it turns out it's an 8th century forgery, so right around the time that the papacy is laying claim to being sovereign over these states, um, they have somebody in the papal library um, very conveniently gave a deed that purported to be from the Emperor Constantine who gave all of these territories uh, for the Pope's rule. Uh, but it turns out that the way that document is written would be totally anachronistic to the 4th century when, when the Emperor Constantine would have been alive and instead relates very much to the circumstances and conditions of the 8th century when it was written, which ends up being the case for pseudepigraphic texts always. You almost always introduce anachronisms. It's very difficult for uh, forgers to get away with you know, doing it, especially in the past before anybody knew uh, all, all these things very well. So we made a little bit of a timeline. <laughs> uh, it's not easy when you have uh, 2,000 years, so what, what do you pick out as the events? Um, but I'm just kind of running you through this really kind of closely as we kind of go, you know, 2,000 years. So I have uh, up until 2013 the resignation of Benedict XVI. Um, if we take it from the present and go backwards. If we go backwards from that... Um, the papal states themselves were sort of dissolved or merged into Italy at the end of the 19th and the early 20th centuries. Um, essentially, Italian unification happened. Uh, Italy took all of that territory, and, and the popes essentially locked themselves in their castle, and they were disputing with the Italian government uh, over uh, whether or not you know the Italians had the right to take all of that land from them, which the popes denied until um, they were able to make a deal with Mussolini, uh, which recognized the Vatican as the present boundary and so forth. Um, before that time is a very low point uh, of the papacy between the Reformation and getting to that kind of low point, frankly, of dealing with Mussolini in that way. Uh, and in that entire time period, uh, the scope of the papacy was much reduced in general to kind of looking to not looking as far beyond Italian politics as all that. So from the Reformation kind of on, um, uh, all of the popes were Italian, and they didn't have, um, you know, sort of the international prestige that we kind of think of right now. Pope Francis is one of the most um, recognized individuals, people, you know, celebrity or whatever, uh, uh, best known individuals on the whole planet. And um, if he flies to anywhere, you know, he get can fill stadiums with all the people who want to go see him and so forth. That was not happening in the 1700s for popes and so forth. Um, you know, at the 18, 1800, when, when Napoleon conquers all of Europe and he has the pope come to, uh, to imitate Charlemagne in order, you know, Charlemagne, uh, the pope, put a crown on his head on Christmas Day and revived the Roman Empire... A thousand years later, and unfortunately not quite, like a thousand and two years later, <laughs> Napoleon didn't get it done in time. Um, he has the Pope come. He's going to revive the empire again. He's essentially taking the he's taking the imperial crown. But the Pope is at such a low ebb that Napoleon kind of pushes the old guy aside, takes the crown, and puts it on his own head. So in other words, he is not he doesn't need 
papal legitimacy, which is now at quite a low ebb during that kind of time period. So if we backtrack a little bit before that, um, one of the things that had happened at the end of the Middle Ages um, that caused, uh, again, some of the kind of the decline of the papacy's prestige is the Avignon papacy. So when the popes for a century, the 14th century, um, largely left the city of Rome and were uh, effectively clients of the French king living in the southern French city of Avignon where they had the capital of the central medieval papacy. And while that was happening, then there was a big schism. And at a certain point, there was two popes, one in Rome, one in Avignon. And then there were three popes, one in Pisa, one in Avignon, and one in Rome, and so forth. So it was a, a low ebb for the papacy. Before that, though, in the central of Middle Ages, I have here called out Gregory VII, um, who is the person uh, for whom the Gregorian reform is named. He is a person who begins a program that gets the papacy to its highest ebb, which occurs right around 1200 or so. And so that Gregorian reform era between Gregory and the Avignon papacy is papacy at its height. Um, that also is triggering the schism with the Eastern Church. So the Eastern Orthodox break with the papacy as it's starting off on these kind of pretensions. I, as we go back on this timeline, we get to the year 800 when Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne, King of the Franks, as the Western Roman Empire, reviving the Western Roman Empire, creating what would eventually become the Holy Roman Empire, um, uh, signing on essentially a new alliance that the popes in Rome have with Western leaders, with the Franks, uh, as opposed to the preceding period of time when they were looking east to Constantinople. Um, as we backtrack before that, we're seeing this entire time period of when the Lombards, the last of the Germanic barbarians to come across the Alps, conquer most of Italy, but not all of Italy. And so the parts that continue to be sort of Byzantine holdouts are the parts that are kind of looking to the Pope for leadership. Um, nevertheless, during that time, the Popes are still kind of writing to the emperors in the East and Constantinople for help. Um, that period kind of begins with one of the first great Popes of the Middle Ages, Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great, uh, the same Pope who sends the mission of St. Augustine of Canterbury to England and begins the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons and the foundation of the Church of England and so forth. Anyway, going back from that, the Council of Nicaea, so Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, becoming Christian and setting the Roman Empire on a path to having uh, Christianity be the state religion and then dialing all the way back to St. Peter, who maybe died around the year 64 or 68, sometime in there, according to tradition anyway. And then some 30 years before that, uh, the death of Jesus. So the institution of the papacy has evolved substantially over the course of these past 2,000 years. So the bishops of Rome, which is how the institution starts. So in other words, it begins as simply the bishops of the city of Rome. They have successfully asserted primacy over other bishoprics of the Latin Roman Church with nevertheless setbacks in terms of schisms. So the Eastern churches broke away and then later in the uh, beginning of the modern era, Protestant Anglican churches also broke away, uh, leaving um, the papacy not as the, let's say, first among equals among a unified uh, universal Christendom, but as the head of 
the largest sect or denomination within Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church. So as we have talked about when we look at kind of the origins of early Christianity, Christianity spread through the Roman Empire initially, taking the form of largely autonomous congregations based in cities and towns, where each city and town ultimately has a bishop. And the bishop tradition is not that there is some central bishop, like a pope in Rome or something like that, who is appointing your bishop for you. Rather, the, every constant congregation themselves, the people there are, when your bishop dies, you, you find that you appoint a new um, person by the acclamation of the members in that town and so forth. So there is a apostolic succession from the founder, uh, whatever the apostle was, who founded or planted the congregation where you are, uh, down to uh, the bishop and then a bishop and bishop and bishop, but it is essentially something that's happening locally. In other words, it is totally autonomous. And um, as we've seen, there's also a great diversity in thought uh, among Christians. And so uh, there is no agreement on Christology. Uh, How do we understand uh, Christ in terms of who was Christ? Is Christ fully human and fully divine? Does Christ have one human divine nature or two natures, one being human and one being divine? what is the relationship between uh, Christ and uh, the Creator, between Christ and the Spirit, and so forth? Uh, there is a vast variety of um, thought on that topic, uh, and it is only really by the time we get to the, the fourth century um, that a structure starts to happen. So, for example, then, what I'm suggesting is at that initial time period, it does not have an org chart where we say the Bishop of Rome is on top, and then there's these other bishops in Antioch and Corinth and Ephesus and Alexandria and so forth. That org chart does not exist in the early church. Rather, the bishops are largely autocephalous, which is to say without a head, and equal to each other. Um, there's no structure really then to compel uniformity, which is one of the reasons why there was so much diversity in early Christianity and why we sometimes call it multiple early Christianities and so forth. Although, in a lot of these leading bishoprics, um, the the bishops will be part of this sort of proto-Orthodox community. But even so, you know, the bishop of Antioch and Alexandria, they are leaning a different direction, let's say, than the bishops of Rome and Corinth and so forth. Okay. That said, although all the bishops were initially equal, very early on, Bishops of Rome established a tradition uh, where they at least claimed to be first among all of those equals. So uh, they're in the capital of the empire, and that gives them that um, uh, sense, I guess, of, of being able to be the arbiters. And so, for example, in the first century already, uh, one of the bishops of Rome, and indeed the first bishop of Rome that we can kind of really historically nail down, Clement I, wrote a letter to the church of Corinth so that he could end a dispute that is happening among the members of the church in Corinth, and he's stepping in and arbitrating for it, um, even though, and again, in theory, what does is, what, is, what the guy in Rome have to do with the bishopric and so forth in Corinth? So there's a precedent already then from what Clement writes uh, in order to step in and arbitrate. 
In the second century, a later bishop of Rome, Victor I, uh, threatens to excommunicate various Eastern bishops for views that he's finding and actions that he's finding heretical. So, in other words, they're claiming already to have some powers, um, and there are some precedents quite early on for that. As always, whenever we look at Christian history, the conversion of the Emperor Constantine in 315 is the real game changer, changes everything for the whole trajectory of the religion. Constantine, when he uh, tries to, he joins the church uh, as a profession of faith, he becomes a Christian, he doesn't actually get baptized right away, but anyway, that's not part of the practice of the time, but he starts to want to learn about it, and he also kind of realizes fairly quickly that he has inherited a church that doesn't have a an overall structure the way the empire does. And also he realizes that the church is divided about some of its most basic doctrines. And so one of the things that he does uh, with that church, you know, divided among co-equal bishops who disagreed, the emperor's solution is to create something new. So he summons all the bishops to come together uh, to Nicaea, which is very close to where his uh, new imperial capital is going to be, Constantinople, just across uh, the little sea from there. And he has them come together for a general council, or what we call an ecumenical council, for oikumenoi, which is the 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 uh, the world, the known world, essentially the Roman Empire is what he's more or less saying, but essentially a universal council of the entire Christian church. And so all these autocephalous bishops now come together and they create something new. Uh, the council then defines what the orthodox beliefs are going to be. Uh, it creates the Nicene Creed, so the thing that a profession of beliefs that all Christians can say about let's say, Christology, about the Trinity, about all of those things, so that they can say uh, kind of the limits of what that belief is without entering into a Trinitarian heresy, which is very easy. So you can instantly, like I say, if you kind of say anything more than the Nicene Creed, you're almost immediately going to commit a Trinitarian uh, heresy, (laughs) one of them or other. Uh, The council also defined a bunch of alternate beliefs, Non-Trinitarian beliefs, for example, Arianism uh, is condemned as a heresy in in the council. The council also created a hierarchy, kind of for the first time, uh, with metropolitan, it was called bishops, as being above bishops. It's still called metropolitans in the east. In the west here we use the word archbishop. So essentially it's essentially creating an archbishop as a new rank above bishops. So so we have it here, we just get find ourselves on the timeline. This is right kind of at the beginning, right? So Constantine transformed a diverse collection of largely autonomous expressions of Christianity into a single institution of the imperial church, which in a couple generations after him, under the emperor Theodosius, became um, a state religion of the Roman Empire. And as a result of that, um, that enhanced the prestige of the bishop of the empire's capital, Rome. So um, by making kind of a hierarchy, by, um, by making it an imperial state religion, ultimately uh, the emperors enhance the prestige of one of the bishops within that empire, the bishop of the capital, the bishop of Rome. Nevertheless, um, that doesn't necessarily mean out of an org chart that the bishop of Rome is on top, right? So I mentioned here there's now these metropolitan bishops. So the bishop of Rome is an archbishop. He is 
uh, over top of, in his archdiocese, he is presiding over, for example, the Bishop of Milan, the Bishop of Carthage, the Bishop of Ravenna. But now there's other um, metropolitan bishops. So the Bishop of the new capital, Constantinople, he's going to be over top of the Bishop of Nicaea and Ephesus and Adrianople. And likewise, the bishop of an old patriarchal center like Antioch is in charge of Caesarea, Laodicea, Edessa, and so forth. But as we are considering this org chart, actually, um, uh, there is actually something new that has now been added to the toolkit. So it's not just the first general council, the Council of Nicaea. Seven general councils of the church, uh, both east and west, are convened by emperors over the course of the next few hundred years. Uh, years. And so one of the things that is added to this org chart effectively is this ecumenical council, which is obviously creating decrees and so forth that are above what any one bishop has to say. And because it's the emperor who calls the council and presides over the council, um, really the org chart that emerges out of Constantine's church is not that the pope is on top, but rather the emperor is on top. Uh, the council is the next governing body, and then there are the bishops, uh, metropolitans above regular bishops, of which then the bishop of Rome continues to claim to be first among equals among all of the bishops. Okay. Nevertheless, another thing that Constantine did was found Constantinople as a new, specifically Christian Rome, capital uh, of the Eastern Empire. Uh, um, or an eastern capital for the empire. It is a much more militarily defensible position, and it was very difficult to uh, take. It's at the strategically important location, the crossroads of Europe and Asia, and also the crossroads uh, in terms of the water from the Mediterranean, the Aegean, to the Black Sea, and so forth. So it's an amazingly important center, and the walls that got built around it made it almost impossible uh, to capture. And so that ends up um, being a competitor for the old Rome. And so as the imperial government continued to uh, exist in Constantinople, after the traditional fall of Rome in 476 AD, um, there became more and more pressure, uh, in other words, more and more prestige transferred to the east. And so increasingly, the bishops of Constantinople challenged the idea of Roman primacy. In other words, the idea that the Roman Church, the Roman bishop, the pope, is the first among equals. And in fact, because the bishop of Constantinople is right there with the emperor, is working with the emperor, is at the head of the imperial government with the emperor, uh, the bishops of Constantinople assume a title, ecumenical patriarch, which sort of means kind of patriarch over the whole world, right? <laughs> and so, and so it is a, um, a title that the popes dispute uh, back and forth, and indeed this dispute over primacy between the two imperial capitals, the original capital, Rome, and Constantinople is one of the, the uh, major major causes for the schism between the Latin West and the Greek East eventually. Uh, in the West, as the uh, Western Empire falls, as the Byzantines exert kind of lukewarm control uh, over the West, including Italy, but are not able to really hold out against the Lombards. Um, the popes are essentially uh, kind of preserving and being the last kind of imperial officials of any importance. 
that are kind of overseeing the last Byzantine outposts. And so you can kind of see in this particular map, in the, cent- in the Dark Ages, essentially from 568 to 774, as the Lombards have descended in and taken over kind of the green areas there of Italy, the other holdouts, places like Venice, places like the Exarchate of Ravenna, of, the, of Rome, and so forth, uh, Naples, those continue to be sort of enclaves of Romanitas, and those um, are essentially the popes are able to kind of become independent princes that are kind of ruling over whatever's left uh, in the middle of all of this. So from the 8th century onward, the popes find a new alliance. They're no longer able to get the emperors to do much to help them. Uh, The Lombards are too much. Uh, The popes start writing to a new Christian power in the West, the kings of the Franks and the Pope's ally with those kings who eventually come down and destroy and conquer the Lombard kingdom and who affirm the Popes as princes of papal states. So that culminates, that alliance culminates in 800, like I say, with Leo III reviving the Western Empire, giving the papacy a new protector and also, though, a new rival because now they have to deal with the fact that there's a Western emperor and that ends up dominating the next uh, whole chapter of papal history. So there's an important precedent that happens with that papal coronation. It's something that, as I mentioned, Napoleon was very aware of, and he didn't want to give the same precedent or control over his empire to the popes. So ecumenical patriarchs and popes have always held a subordinate role, had had always held a subordinate role to the emperors in Constantinople, but by taking the initiative to revive the Western Empire, by crowning the emperor, Leo III pretty much created an important precedent for papal primacy. Essentially, um, the way now the empire in the West is going to work, the way the Holy Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire works, is that the princes in Germany... um, initially the princes of the Franks, but later it becomes the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. The princes in Germany get together. They elect a essentially emperor-designate. and The emperor-designate has the title King of the Romans. Then the King of the Romans comes to Rome where he's crowned by the Pope, and then he's afterwards known as the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. So once there was an emperor in the West again, he also had an interest in deciding who sat on Peter's throne. And so emperors also fairly quickly began to influence papal elections, and they assumed the authority to depose unworthy popes. Uh, And so this, like I say, is what sets up a major rivalry then between the Western emperors and the papacy throughout the Middle Ages. So like the imperial crown in the West, the papacy is also an elected monarchy, and we've you've been alive probably to watch essentially the, both the election maybe of Benedict and Francis, and so you kind of see how it is. The media kind of camps out around uh, as all of the popes here are gathered. I'm sorry, the popes. All the cardinals are are gathered in the Sistine Chapel, uh, and they have their ballots and so forth as they're picking who is going to be the next uh, pope. So, how are the popes made? How would the emperors affect the process? So the current system, there's about 100 cardinals. They enter the Sistine Chapel. They, um, and once they have got their ballots, they burn them. They send up a smoke signal to the people outside. And if it's the right color <laughs> signal, then they say, Habemus Papam, we have a pope, and so forth. 
so the the dark smoke is there's no pope yet. The white smoke is a pope has been chosen, and the result is tweeted around the world and so forth. <laughs> so originally, like all bishops, popes were chosen actually just by a consensus of the clergy and the people of the Rome, and they had essentially an informal acclamation. And so elections didn't have any kind of actual formal rules or the, who was doing the electing and so forth. It was, generally speaking, a consensus that this person might be the right person. They kind of put the crown on his head and they take him out to the balcony and proclaim him before the people. And everybody, if everybody shouts yes, then that's sort of the um, that's sort of all it kind of took in the past. However, that resulted in uh, occasions where there were more than one person that was acclaimed and elected, and so then there would be a pope and an anti-pope, and you didn't know which one was the real pope and so forth, because there's two a contested election which happened many many times throughout. The Middle Ages. So restricting the election to the cardinals, and cardinals are originally, now they're international clergy, so they'll essentially give, if somebody, the Bishop of Montreal, the Archbishop of Montreal here in Canada is an important backer of the Pope or something, he might get the title uh, cardinal, archbishop, and so forth. But um, originally, when the cardinals emerged, they are effectively the um, the deacons, uh, priests, and bishops of the local dioceses that are immediately surrounding the city of Rome. So by limiting the election to the cardinals, that was designed to limit manipulation of the elections and also to avoid disputed elections. So in the 11th century, the papacy was at a low point. German emperors, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, would intervene. They would come down and depose uh, popes that were clearly bad and corrupt and so forth. And they would appoint, um, because they really actually did believe in papal reform, they would report, appoint reform-minded popes. Ironically, um, by kind of having good, thoughtful popes that the emperors kind of put on the throne, this led to the Gregorian reform popes who then uh, got law, got studying law, they created you know, legal universities and so forth, and they, and they were able to successfully assert papal primacy over secular rulers, uh, ultimately destroying the power of the Holy Roman Emperors themselves. Um, and so, anyway, that was an unintended consequence of reforming the papacy on the part of the emperors. Later, emperors continued to attempt to depose popes and replace them with uh, compliant loyalists. However, that uh, at a certain point, they lost the ability to do that very successfully. The popes kind of beat out the emperors. So, for example, in his fight with Pope Alexander III, the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa created three successive anti-popes, but ultimately had to concede defeat and recognize Alexander as the as the Pope and so forth. So that kind of gives us anyway the kind of the middle then between uh, crowning of Charlemagne and the height of the papacy. So as the papacy became more assertive and successful in claiming primacy over the Latin Western Christian Church. Eastern Greek Christians still inhabiting the remains of the Roman Empire. Historians call it the Byzantine Empire, but in the East they just considered themselves to be the Romans still. Uh, they were alienated and they fell out of communion with the Western Church altogether. So um, from that high point, like I say, the Reformed popes frequently had to flee Rome because they were fighting the emperor or they were fighting other lords or they were fighting with Roman citizens and so forth. And as they did that, they moved to Avignon. This is the palace of the popes that's still there. 
Um, the move was not intended to be permanent, uh, but once the Curia moved there, once the papal court moved there, it was very difficult to go back to Rome. Um, and as things went on, French popes started picking French cardinals once they were based in France, and the Curia increasingly fell under the influence of the French. And so seven of the uh, seven Avignonese popes are French. So in other words, these are uh, these become uh, it becomes a kind of a French institution when that happens. This has also caused amazing amounts of scandal. So cut off from the papal states, which were ungovernable. The Curia didn't get its normal money that it was getting, that it would be able to tax land. So in other words, they were not getting any of those revenues. And so they had to do other things like sell indulgences, which that becomes kind of a scandal of the church, which is to say, you've committed a sin, you're going to have to do a lot of penance in, in, in limbo, in, in, uh, uh, in purgatory in the future. If you, but if you pay a bunch of money to the, get a certificate and a blessing from uh, the Pope, you're going to skip out on 100 years or whatever of purgatory and so forth. In other words, it's a way to um, raise money in the here and now that uh, a lot of people objected to. So overall, what ends up happening by the Avignonese papacy is dominating by French interests and focused on revenue. Papal prestige probably dropped to an all-time low while it's in Avignon. And so one of these very important mystics, um, St. Catherine of Siena, in a, you know, a sexist time period, nevertheless, women, uh, women leaders who assert a lot of influence, she successfully shamed uh, one of the last uh, Avignonese popes to return to Rome. Uh, so under that pressure, Gregory XI returned to Rome. Uh, it had fallen into ruins. The cardinals who came back with him were all upset about being there. They wanted to go back to Avignon where everything they had palaces, where everything was nice. Before they could go back home, Gregory died. While he's dead, the cardinals go into their conclave. The people outside demanded now that they pick a Roman pope. So in other words, they're not going to let them get away with picking one of their French cardinals to be the uh, pope. So the majority of the cardinals under that kind of pressure pick one of their own, Bartolomeo Prignano, who was a 60-year-old Italian from Naples who had served as a loyal bureaucrat. I always think, oh, these guys, he's, he's just this loyal backbencher and so forth, and he's kind of old anyway, so he's not going to be a problem. Once they get the crown on him, <laughs> the new pope is never, you know, a lot of times it gets a lot more vigor than they'd ever had. So he becomes Urban VI, and he is not uh, uh, a pliant tool to the cardinals. He announced a whole bunch of reforms aimed at eliminating graft and corruption. Um, it was upsetting to the cardinals. Uh, these moves would have wiped out a lot of their income and so forth. In response, the mostly French cardinals, I say freak out. <laughs> they claim that their first election had been done under duress. They enter a second conclave. They elect a second guy, Robert of Geneva, as pope, and then they all flee back to Avignon. And so that is what causes uh, two popes, right? So there's a pope in Avignon, which is immediately kind of recognized by the French, of course. And if you're going to be recognized by the king of France, they have the old alliance with the kings of Scotland, so obviously Scotland. But if your enemy is, if your, Fran, your friend is France, then your enemy is England. So and the guy in England, of course, recognizes Rome and so forth. And so essentially Europe is divided into two, those kind of two camps about which, which one is pope. So because of this problem, people, after all of this, a lot of time, people don't want to have two popes. Uh, they want to have a solution. So the solution that everybody proposes is we need to have another one of these ecumenical councils. 
And so cardinals from both sides, from Avignon and Rome, uh, uh, four cardinal, I'm sorry, 22 cardinals, four patriarchs, 80 bishops, representatives of 100 more bishoprics met with 300 doctors of theology in Pisa in 1409 in order to solve the schism. Uh, the council declared uh, that the ecum- authority of ecumenical councils is superior to bishops, including the pope. The council declared both popes, the Pope of Avignon and the Pope of Rome, to be deposed, and the, Pounce, the Pisan cardinals then elect a new pope. And so that solved the whole problem, right? <laughs> now, now there's three popes. <laughs> and, so, and so then that, that's a situation now that lasts uh, another few decades, um, or a couple, not a few, another decade and a half, uh, until there is another more successful council, the Council of Constance in 414, called and overseen by the king of the Romans, which is to say the emperor-designate Sigismund, king of Hungary. So one of the last kind of very powerful uh, uh, holy Roman emperors because he's also king of Hungary in his own right. The Council of Constance then, again, is widely attended. It ends up being like a council, an ecumenical council where they vote by nations. So the Italians, the Germans, the French, and the English are represented um, they ultimately accept the Roman Pope's resignation and therefore legitimize the Roman line retroactively, and they depose the, uh, the Pisan Pope and the, uh, and the Avignonese Pope, and they create their own new Pope, but this time it sticks. So Martin V then becomes Pope going forward. So Constance then declares the idea that ecumenical councils are superior to Popes and Part of the deal in naming the new pope, uh, Martin V, is that they got him to promise every five years he'd call a new ecumenical council, and that would be essentially the way that the church is governed. It's essentially creating like a parliament uh, for the church, an attempt to create, let's say, a constitutional monarchy. Uh, And so that kind of gets us to the end of the Avignon PPC right here, right? But unfortunately, although Martin V who is named Pope by this ecumenical council of Constance, although he promised to call new ecumenical councils every five years to create this kind of constitutional parliamentary system to oversee the church, he then immediately failed to do that. (laughs) So he effectively ended the threat of conciliarism by preventing uh, any councils from being uh, called. Unfortunately, that left the church still in need of many, many reforms, and it left it quite open to further schism. So while the papacy successfully had edged out the Eastern patriarchs, the patriarch of Constantinople and so forth, by essentially writing off the whole Eastern church, which left, they smashed the power of the Holy Roman emperors. Uh, They avoided the threat of conciliarism. Nevertheless, as it starts doing all those things, the scope of the papacy narrows pretty much to that of a, a powerful local prince fighting in Renaissance Italy. And so by the time we get to the end of the Renaissance, the first Medici pope, Medici's being the Renaissance princes of Florence, of Tuscany, uh, one of their cousins, nephews kind of thing, uh, is made pope, Leo X. He was actually really distracted by all of the immediate threats around him in Italy and really didn't devote much time to this strange thing that's happening up in, in Germany where an obscure monk named Martin Luther nails 95 theses to a door in 1517 and so forth. Uh, and so the papacy doesn't really react uh, as to this, what becomes an important threat, which it doesn't seem like it is maybe at the beginning.
So just to kind of go through from that to the present. So having lost the kind of northern half of Latin Christendom to the Protestants and Anglicans, the remaining church refounded itself in opposition to Protestantism during the Counter-Reformation, the end of the 16th and the early 17th centuries from the Council of Trent until the Peace of Westphalia. Although the papacy continued to be at the head of the Roman Catholic Church, it's now actually at that point then merely the largest denomination within Christianity as opposed to being the kind of uh, first among equals of the universal church and so forth. So papal power, as I said, kind of ebbed um, in all of that kind of time period after, after 1648, um, up until really to the end of the 20th century with Vatican II and then later with John Paul II, who really did a lot to um, recapture uh, the international prestige of of the papacy and bring it to a new level again that it really hadn't had for a couple centuries. So, as I say then, from the occasional claims of being first among equal, the popes became sovereign princes in the 8th century. They had they achieved really significant power over Western Christendom by the reign of Innocent III, probably the most powerful pope, the turn of the um, 12th century, 13th century. 1198 to 1216. Um, uh, but let's go back now, as we kind of have now done that history. We want to talk about the earlier, the beginnings of the papacy. What about that period of time before Clement I of Rome, one of the first people that we've quoted in the lecture today? How do we get back from that to Jesus? So how did all this get started? So there is a Galilean fisherman named Simon, or Simeon, who gets nicknamed Peter, um, which means rock in Greek. So essentially calling a guy named Simon, starting calling him Rocky, uh, one of Jesus's leaders, who is one of Jesus's leaders and his leading disciples and an early Christian leader after uh, Jesus's crucifixion. So the traditional understanding of Peter um, as emerged out of Christian tradition is that he was a prominent early Christian leader, the leader of the Twelve Apostles. And among early Christians, the proto-Orthodox community, the community that becomes uh, the Orthodox and Catholic Church, the Greek and Latin churches um, under Constantine, uh, the proto-Orthodox community looks to Peter's authority and claims Peter's authority. Um, Peter led a church in Antioch, before, according to tradition anyway, relocating in his final years to Rome, where he is assumed to have been martyred by the Emperor Nero. Um, one of the most important components of uh, Peter's authority comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there's an image here of Christ bestowing the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And in that account in Matthew, it says, Jesus answered and said unto, unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto, you, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. In other words, he changes his name here. And upon this rock, thou art a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Water here. 
<laughs> okay. And so this is where we have all of these cartoons and so forth. We have a big trope like that when you're going to when you die and you're going to go to heaven, St. Peter is at the gatekeeper, right? Because uh essentially uh, Jesus gave him the keys <laughs> to the kingdom of heaven and he's the one with the keys and he's there checking uh your whole list of uh naughty and nice list or whatever whether you're going to make it into into heaven. St. Peter is heaven's gatekeeper. It is also um, the symbolism in the papal coat of arms. So the popes who uh, claim to be the heirs of St. Peter use those keys described in that account of Matthew and actually nowhere else um, as a symbol of papal authority. You can see the two keys crossed like two swords uh, behind a royal crown, behind a triple papal crown. Originally, um, the term cathedral it doesn't refer, when we say cathedral, you probably think of a large kind of Gothic church. Um, but actually, many Gothic churches like that are not technically cathedrals. And indeed, um, the Vatican itself, St. Peter's, Rome, is not a cathedral because the word cathedral refers actually to the throne of the bishop. And so, in a lot of cases, there'll be an actual seat in, in, in one of these cathedrals that's kind of the big chair or cathedral for the the um, diocesan bishop, and the cathedral for Rome is actually a different church entirely. The cathedral of Saint John's Lateran, one of the uh, four really ancient churches in Rome. Um, nevertheless, the papacy had moved and is in kind of hangs out at the Vatican now, uh, in part, even though that's outside of Rome's ancient walls, and actually um, they actually had to have a during the Middle Ages, because of all of the barbarian attacks and so forth, they actually had to build walls called the Leonine Walls around the Vatican in order to include them in the walls of Rome. Uh, because St. Peter's is, in fact, the traditional site of Peter's martyrdom and tomb. And so if you go to St. Peter's, there's this baldachin, which is, I guess, a fancy word for canopy, and it is a very fancy canopy, <laughs> That is directly uh, placed, and it's under the dome, but it's in uh, over Peter's, the site of Peter's traditional tomb. And if we take a floor plan, you can kind of see in the dots there, kind of new St. Peter's, the St. Peter's that exists now is that big thing where the tomb is right kind of, let's see if I can, can I use this thing or not? Does this work? No, I can't. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back. I was going to see if my marker would mark it for you. Essentially, you can kind of see uh, the tomb of St. Peter's is in the middle of the of the big St. Peter's church. The, the In dark black is the old St. Peter's, the 4th century basilica that was um, one of the most important ancient uh, and preserved Christian churches that was ripped down by the Renaissance Pope Julius II. Uh, who it was a, essentially a major act of vandalism was when he destroyed old St. Peter's, although he caused the creation of new St. Peter's, which is an amazing artifact itself, but he had to destroy it in order to build it. And then in the gray uh, below that is a much ancient, um, even more ancient uh, thing, which is the Circus of Nero, Circus being the place where uh, the chariot races are held. And as you probably are aware, you know, that the... the the chariot stadiums and also the amphitheaters where the gladiator uh, uh, things occur are sites where, um, per, during persecutions, the Roman authorities are are martyring uh, Christian martyrs. And so traditionally, the idea here is that Peter 
is martyred by the emperor Nero during local persecutions that conducted in Rome, that Nero conducted between 64 and 68. And in this case, he he would have been executed, crucified uh, in the circus and then buried uh, just outside the circus. And that's why, anyway, St. Peter's is where it is. So, so early Christian tradition then connects Peter and Rome. For example, one of the important, most important early thinkers, Origen, wrote uh, at the end, probably he wrote it in the, maybe the early 3rd century, he said, Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he himself had desired to suffer. So essentially the idea of that traditional story, and so Peter's cross is often an upside down cross, more or less he's saying that he doesn't, um, he didn't have the, he wasn't, ha- wasn't worthy to be killed in the exact same way as Jesus, and so he's going to be crucified, and he's able to talk the Romans who are executing him to do him upside down instead of, uh, instead of right side up. And so uh, essentially that's the traditional story. Uh, Jerome, uh, St. Jerome, who is a very important uh, in collecting the biblical canon and translating it into Latin, um, he connects Peter to Clement I, that early first century pope that we talked about, suggesting actually that Clement was either the immediate successor to Peter uh, or that he was the fourth bishop of Rome. There's a little reference that he had, which is that Peter uh, ordained Clement, uh, Linus, and Anacletus. And so the idea of it was maybe there's one or two popes between Peter and Clement, and that, but in any event, there was a direct connection between Clement who is a known historical figure anyway, and Peter, another known historical figure, but not one that we know for sure was ever in Rome. So that's kind of the traditional understanding of Peter, and I want to kind of look at what we can know about the historical figure so we can get at the um, uh, the origins of these traditions. Um, so this is a painting, a modern painting, of Peter and Jesus walking on water. So in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story that Jesus walking on water, that has a parallel in the Gospel of John. Always, as we know, Luke and Matthew use Mark as a source, uh, whereas Luke deletes the story, so it doesn't include this walking on water story. Matthew adds a story of Peter trying to walk to Jesus on the water. And so that's, again, one of the only in Matthew kind of things. Matthew's pretty pro-Peter. Um Historical sources for the Peter. So, for the, I'm sorry, sources for the historical Peter. So, mostly what we have in order to look at Peter are uh, New Testament accounts, and so those are Paul, first and foremost, Paul's letters. Second, we have a bunch of letters that are actually attributed to Peter. Two letters, First and Second Peter, in the New Testament, and then there are stories about Peter in the Gospels and in Acts. In addition to those kind of um, books that made it into the Bible, there's a whole bunch of Christian apocrypha, lost Bible, biblical books, we might say, books that did not make it into the canon, which include things like the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter. Um, The problem with all of these is that um, unlike things like the Gospel of Thomas or even the Didache, these are later texts and they're less important and they don't, they're mostly... um, uh, building on existing tradition rather than uh, re- preserving anything from the life of Peter. 
And then in addition to that, we also have then writings of early Christians, Christians before Jerome and Origen, including people like Papias, Clement, who we've mentioned a couple times here, Polycarp, Ignatius, and Irenaeus. So let's look first at the epistles of Peter, since that seems like that would be a great source to learn about Peter. So like I say, two letters that claim to have been written by Peter have been canonized in the New Testament. Both of them are written in Greek, and it was already realized by the time of St. Jerome. St. Jerome, who, like I say, is an important um, scholar who's assembling the canon of the Old and New Testaments and is uh, actively translating the canon into Latin, which becomes the the Vulgate of St. Jerome, it's called, the the Catholic Bible, uh, the Latin Bible. Jerome noted that these two letters are both of them too sophisticated in terms of their Greek to have been written by a poor fisherman like Simon, Simon Peter, whose first language would have been Aramaic and maybe would have known a little bit of Hebrew and now he's learning Greek uh, and how how good could his Greek ever be. Um, So Jerome's solution was uh, so I'm sorry, and the language and the writing style have actually both letters are too distinct from each other to have been written by the same person. And so First Peter is not written by the same person as Second Peter. So Jerome's solution to this, which is a traditionalist solution, is Peter had two secretaries and he kind of told uh, what he wanted to say to one, maybe even in Aramaic, and that person you know, wrote the First Peter and then he wrote to the next letter later to using a different secretary and so forth. Um, so that was the, uh, the solution. In any event, the point of it is uh, they're both written in Greek that's too sophisticated and they're written by different authors. So let's look at the second Peter first. So second Peter does claim it's written by, uh, quote, as it begins in, 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 in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So it's not making any, you're not, uh, it knows who it's pretending to be by. Uh, but unfortunately, the text itself reworks and expands the epistle of Jude. So this is a different Bible book, the shortest book in the New Testament, likely written between 70 and 110. And uh, is this Second Peter, by because it uses Jude as a source, is thus written after Jude. Um, you know, and again, obviously Peter is dead by the time Jude is written. So um, among the pseudepigraphical texts in the Bible, therefore, Second Peter, I think, stands out as being conclusively demonstrated that it's not what it claims. So it is literarily dependent on Jude. Jude is written very likely after Peter's death. Uh, Second Peter claims to be written by Peter, but it is, in fact, somebody who's not Peter who is reworking the epistle of Jude. It's, therefore, pseudepigrapha, which is to say, text written by someone who's claiming to be someone they aren't. Uh, Writing the authority of Peter and so forth, uh, but nevertheless not written by Peter. First Peter um, also um, represents a context of widespread persecution that did not exist during the reign of Nero. So we talk about when we're looking and doing literary criticism to find out if something is a forgery, is we look at anachronisms. And so, um, uh, you know, the reign of Nero is the traditional date of Peter's death. So therefore, um, it's still probably an early writing. And so some scholars suggest that First Peter is instead dated to the reign of the emperor Domitian in the 80s or 90s. 
Um, uh, and so therefore, um, because it's reflecting a later time, it has anachronisms and therefore is not written in Peter's life. So most scholars agree that the text could not have been written by the historic Peter. Um, again, whenever we are doing biblical criticism, there are traditionalists who want to maintain um, Petrian authorship. They want to maintain the traditional identifications, even if um, I would say that those are not plausible. Uh, but I would find I, I would tend to argue that a lot of these traditional scholars are are kind of have that agenda item as opposed to leading to whatever the evidence leads them. So, um, taking then those two aside, which are not maybe getting us to the historic Peter. Nevertheless, Peter is a major character in the canonical Gospels and Acts, and in fact, traditionally, the author of Mark is thought to have been an assistant to Peter. And the Gospel of Mark has been imagined to reflect Peter's perspective as a result. Um, where does this come from? So this is based on a very early Christian, Papias of Hierapolis, um, who himself was had gone around and talked to very early Christian sources, including um, someone named John the Elder, a leader in the church in Ephesus. And so although Papias is... Um, work is lost. He is quoted a lot in people like Origen and Jerome and later writers and so forth. And so we have some of the preface and other quotations out of his text that he wrote sometime at the end of the, of the first to the beginning of the second centuries. So Papias writes uh, concerning the work that he has as he's trying to reconstruct the early Christian story. He writes, I shall not hesitate also to put into ordered form for you, along with the interpretations, everything I learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down carefully for the truth of which I vouch. For unlike most people, I took no pleasure in those who told many different stories, but only in those who taught the truth. Nor did I take pleasure in those who reported their memory of someone else's commandments, but only in those who reported their memory of the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance anyone who had been in attendance on the elders arrived, I made inquiries about the words of the elders, what Andrew or Peter had said, or what Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew, or any of the other of the Lord's disciples, and whatever Aristion and John the elder, the Lord's disciples were saying. For I did not think uh, that much information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. So that's explaining kind of his methodology. He is going around. He's not crediting uh, written text as much, but if there is a um, an old disciple who shows up in his town who maybe remembers something that one of the uh, original apostles had said, then he would copy that down. And so... Um, many Christians, he's saying that he's talking to, for example, John the Elder, and as I've mentioned, um, lots of people conflate all of these guys named John with each other. And so this is a disciple that's personally living around, and Papias knows, uh, maybe around the year 100 in Ephesus. And a lot of people equate this guy as if he's John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, John the Revelator, and so forth. It's very likely just John the Elder, some other guy named John. Um, but because of uh, that supposed connection to authority, Papias is um, 
descriptions here are given undue authority, I think, and weight. He's actually an early guy, and I think what he's actually showing is, is that as of the year 100, a lot of these stories and a lot of this background is completely unknown even to Christian leaders, and he's having to try to reconstruct it by asking a lot of old people questions. Um, specifically regarding the Gospels, um, regarding Matthew, Papias claims, therefore Matthew put the logia, the sayings, in an ordered arrangement in the Hebrew language, but each purpose person interpreted them as best he could. Um, this statement has confused scholars for centuries. So it led people for many, many centuries to conclude the false conclusion that Matthew uh, was the first gospel, and that's one of the reasons why it's first in the order of the New Testament, even though Mark is the older gospel. And also that Matthew's gospel was originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek. But textual criticism really has demonstrated that Matthew was composed in Greek, that it's textually dependent on Mark. And what I think it really demonstrates is Papias' uh, um, interview process here is unreliable. So in other words, he's coming up with uh, information that's, that is false. So, uh, and this, this shows it. So, as we've seen in other lectures, the Gospels, in fact, are anonymous texts written by Greek, sorry, written in Greek by Christians who were not eyewitnesses of Jesus, to which the names Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John were later ascribed. And so while the Gospels and Acts contain historical information, they're not histories themselves, and actually most of their contents are literary, so we can't just take every single thing that happens in the Gospels or Acts uh, as information about the historical Peter and so forth, right? Um, they are being written for very different literary purposes by um, devoted Christians who want to tell the story in or for, for a religious purpose, and when they don't have, um, they're working from traditions that may or may not have historical basis. And when they and when they don't have details, what they do is they go to the Old Testament, they go to the um, Hebrew Bible, they find um, prophecies or by Isaiah, they find stories uh, in the Deuteronomic histories, they find uh, phrases in the Psalms, and and create um, information or stories about the histor- about Jesus, the gosp- Jesus of the Gospels, knowing or believing as they do that uh, Jesus' life was reflected by those Old Testament stories. So in other words, um, that is why they match in those ways. So as problematic then as all these uh, later sources are, we actually can confirm Peter is an actual historic figure through the writings of Paul. It always comes back to Paul when we're doing these kind of historicity things, right? So Paul of Tarsus is the earliest Christian whose writings survived, and Paul describes meeting with Peter, as well as with James, the brother of Jesus. He's met them both, he says, for about 15 days three years after his own conversion experience, so this would have been very early in the 30s or so. Paul has really no reason to make up these characters who are, in fact, uh, rivals of his, it turns out. So let's just read a little bit about what Paul has to say. Writing in the late 40s or early 50s in the letter to Galatians, he says, You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I, Paul, persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So in other words, I had a vision of Christ, right? God revealed his son to me, and my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. So in other words, he is not being called by any human powers. He's not part of a structure of the um, anybody who had already been an apostle or a disciple of Jesus. He's called directly by a vision, and he therefore went to Arabia. Um, and so he went to, you know, it's probably Jordan and so forth. Uh, and later I returned to Damascus. So in other words, he went and decided to be an apostle and a preacher directly based on his own conversion vision as opposed to um, listening to these authorities. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is to say Peter. Cephas here is a um, uh, Aramaic for Peter, Greek, Peter's Greek for rock. Cephas is Kepha is Greek for, I'm sorry, Aramaic for rock. So Paul calls him Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So in other words, there are still apostles uh, by the time Paul is doing this at the end of the 30s and he's meeting with these folks and they're still based in Jerusalem. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. <laughs> That isn't, a, that isn't a vote of confidence, but in any event, he's trying to assure us that that is a true statement. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They'd only heard the report, quote, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. So in other words, Paul met the apostle Cephas, Kepha in Aramaic for stone, in the 30s in Jerusalem. The earliest tradition about the visions of the resurrected Christ also uh, occurs in Paul. So Paul indicates, actually, that Christ appeared first to Peter. So Paul says in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then all the other people that he appears to, and so forth. So while emphasizing Peter's importance here, um, Paul's teaching actually contradicts the later gospel traditions which indicate that Jesus, or the risen Christ, appeared first to his female disciples and apostles. So Paul also indicates that Peter was married, and that uh, Peter's wife accompanied him on apostolic missions. So again, in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, he says, 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? So it seems in this reference here to indicate that the original idea of missionary pairs, so Jesus sends people out two by two, um, may have been because a male apostle is paired with a female apostle. Female apostles would have had trouble traveling alone because of uh, Roman law and Greek customs and so forth. But Paul, um, actually, in this case, he's unmarried. 
he changes that tradition by traveling around with young men, so he has missionary companions like Titus and so forth, uh, for which he's actually criticized. So he is actually responding to that. I'm, it's okay for me to go around with these young guys or whatever as my missionary companions because uh, other apostles like Peter are bringing their wife around as their companion and so forth. So the Gospels, in the same way, um, Mark, in Mark chapter 1, uh, confirms that Peter was married. He talks of there's a, anyway a, um, an incident anyway at his mother-in-law's house and so forth. So Peter is also portrayed as a Christian factional leader in Paul's writings. So Paul is the leader of a faction in Christianity, and he actually identifies Peter as an opposing leader, or at least as a leader to which other factions look to for authority. So again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another says, I follow Christ. And so although Paul here is arguing that Christians should transcend such factionalism, he's essentially admitting that there's been a conflict. He's been in conflict with Peter uh, in, and, and other their divergent views, whether non-Jew, and over their divergent views on whether non-Jews who convert must adhere to Jewish law. And he spells that out in other places more clearly. So for example... Um, here he describes in his uh, letter to the Galatians his fight with Peter and the acknowledged pillars of the church. He says, as, those, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. So as to those who were held in high esteem, in other words, the leaders of the church, Cephas and Paul, I'm sorry, and J- um, uh, James the brother and Jesus, John and so forth, they're held in high esteem by some people. That doesn't make any difference to me because God doesn't show favoritism is what Paul's saying. They, those guys, added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So in other words, he had been meeting with these leaders like Peter And they all said, yeah, okay, you have a calling and you're supposed to preach to the Gentiles. You're supposed to preach to Greek-speaking people who are not uh, Jews already. They're not circumcised. And Peter's going to go around and and convert all of the Jews. For God, he says, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas, Paul, one of Paul's young men companions, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They're going to go convert Jews. You guys could go ahead and convert Greeks. So whether or not there really was an agreement like that, Paul admits that it did not hold. So he goes on and says, Later then, when Cephas came to Antioch, where Paul had been leading and planted a Christian community, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, the brother of Jesus, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. He didn't always keep kosher. He was actually agreeing with me about the law and so forth. But when they arrived, when James, the brother of Jesus's um messengers, when his uh, legates arrived, then Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid 
of those who belong to the circumcision group, this faction led by Jesus' brother James that is in opposition to Paul. So the other Jews in the Christian community in Antioch joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, even his young man companion was led astray. Uh, and so this is a pretty direct uh, admission of a one-on-one fight that uh, Paul is having here with Peter, where he's saying, essentially, I'm opposing him and condemning him to his face for his hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of these so-called pillars uh, who God shows no favorites. I don't care what they, who they say they are. I'm directly called by Christ here, Paul say. So, so what do we get from um, information about the historical Peter in Paul? So from Paul, we learn um, that there's a guy and he's got a nickname, Peter, Cephas. He's one of the um, original apostles of Jesus during Jesus's lifetime that that he, Peter, had a vision of the risen Christ. According to Paul, he was the very first person to have a vision of the risen Christ. That he continued to be one of the acknowledged pillars of the church that existed in Jerusalem alongside Jesus' brothers, James, the brother of Jesus, Jude, the brother of Jesus, so forth, and also John, who we'll talk about in a future lecture. He's also the source, then, of factional authority. So the circumcision faction is what... um, uh, what Paul's calling them, what we might call them is like the original Jesus followers as opposed to the new Pauline Jesus followers. Paul and the, the beginnings of proto-Orthodoxy, these are maybe the uh, the poor of Jerusalem, the Ebionite um, uh, faction, the original faction. Um, he was married, Paul was married, traveled with his wife. He vacillated over this kosher question uh, when he's with Paul, he's okay with it. When he's with James, he's like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. And at a certain point, he's active in Antioch. So we learn all of those kind of things, and we can say that for sure about the historical Jesus, sorry, about the historical Peter. Um, Things beyond that that we get out of the the Gospels, you know, his original name is Simon, that he's a fisherman, all of those things we have to build up based on the same criteria that we do with the historical Jesus about multiple attestation, criterion of embarrassment, other kinds of things in order to build a, a fuller portrait. But we get at least this kind of bare bones uh, from the direct uh, testimony of his local rival or his contemporary rival, Paul. Um, so unfortunately, that doesn't give us any connection between Peter and Rome in Paul's writings. So although Paul met with Peter on at least two occasions in Jerusalem and then later in Antioch, He does not connect Peter with the city of Rome. Um, Paul's final letter, actually, in the New Testament, his longest letter, the letter to the Romans, is written to the Christian community that existed in Rome, and he wrote it in the mid to late 50s AD. Um, It's very clear from Paul's letter that the Roman community, the Christian community in Rome, is actually very large and well-established already, and that Peter and Paul did not found it. It was already there from some other other founders. Paul actually writes out and addresses 50 different individuals, but makes no mention of Peter. So he's, uh, you know, even though he knows Peter, so it's very unlikely that Peter is present in Rome at that kind of time or is in any way associated with the church in Rome. Um, there is also no early awareness of Peter's martyrdom in Rome anyway. 
um, that Peter was martyred is understood, but it's a general kind of understanding. So as we saw, later tradition held that Peter was martyred in Rome under Nero between the years 64 and 68. However, just a few years later, beginning with Mark, which is written maybe around the year 70, all of the Gospels and the book of Acts, which is just the second half of the book of Luke, all of those are written after 64 or 68. And in, fact, in fact, soon thereafter. But none of them mention the idea that Peter is martyred in Rome or that Peter had become bishop of Rome. And it's certainly not... Um, so say, if that story was known to the author of Mark, it is not uh, outside of the author of Mark's uh, uh, literary, um, you know, literary principles and un- understanding to what to do to have put um, that back into the story. In other words, Mark, if Mark had heard that Peter had uh, been in Rome and was martyred in Rome, um, he could very easily have had Jesus have a prophecy of that, that that was going to happen, the same way that Mark is writing after let's say if it's 70 or 73, after the the war is happening, the Jewish revolt and the destruction of the temple, uh, Mark is putting um, back into Jesus's mouth a prediction that the temple was going to be destroyed, knowing that it's going to be destroyed because he's alive at that point. So in other words, it's very um, unusual if that story was known, if it had already been created, if that it was an actual historical event, you would think that one of the gospel writers specifically the book of Acts, which is about where Peter's a major character and is running around and doing stuff. Um, But none of these books seem to be aware of this tradition, which therefore probably doesn't exist yet as a story. So in other words, it's not something that happened, and it's not something that has been invented yet as a story. So when we do have at the end of the first century, this bishop of Rome, Clement I, and he's actually, he mentions Peter, but he doesn't connect him to Rome, and he doesn't cite him as a predecessor. So centuries later, uh, Jerome tells a story that Peter had personally ordained Clement to priesthood and so forth. But Clement here, who is writing an intervention letter to the Corinthian church, and he doesn't really have any particular standing to do it, if he was saying, I, Clement, Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, who personally put on my, you know, put his hands on my head and ordained me to priesthood, who gave me the keys to the kingdom. He, you think he might mention uh, that as he's trying to establish standing for himself, why he's intervention, intervening in the Corinthian church. Um, Clement doesn't do that, and there's no particular reason to imagine that he's heard of a story associating Peter uh, with Rome or as one of his predecessors or anything like that. Um, there is a reference in the pseudepigraphical letter of 1 Peter. It indicates that the author is writing from Babylon. Obviously, the author isn't Peter, but he is pretending to be Peter, and so he at least at this point is associating, potentially associating anyway, Peter as being in Rome, which is essentially the new Babylon, although it doesn't specifically say that. Um, so in other words, this tradition may have started, you know, started to evolve in the second century. Ignatius of Antioch, in the late first and second, early second century, indicates uh, that Peter and Paul had admonished the Romans. Although I don't know that it means that he said that they had done so in person. Finally, by the time you get to the end of the second century, Irenaeus of Lyon claims that Peter and Paul founded the church in Rome. But we know actually, 
from Paul's letter to the Romans that that's not true. So in other words, the church in Rome had already been well-founded, that Paul did not was not a founder of it. Um, he's writing to it in order to try to get support from the church in Rome, um, and he doesn't associate that with Peter at all. So later, the tradition is developing, and so later, uh, people assume that that's the case. And so to sum up, as we go back to our timeline, in some what I think I want to say is the papacy is certainly an ancient institution. It dates to the first century, its claims to primacy have some very ancient precedents, going all the way back to the first century, but they were largely developed and um, had bore fruit during the Middle Ages. While the connections to Peter are likewise ancient, going all the way back to you know, the end of the first and the beginning, especially in the end of the second centuries and third centuries, they do not actually connect to the historic Peter, who, in my view, probably very likely never never visited Rome. Uh, and so, uh, but even though there is a traditional tomb and so forth, um, that that tradition established, was established in the tomb location and so forth, were established after um, the tradition that Peter was in Rome, which was many, many decades after uh, Peter fell out of the, the historic Peter fell out of the historical record. And so that is my review on the origins of the papacy. And so we will see now if there have been questions. And while uh, Landro is giving me questions, I'm going to have a glass of water. <laughs> That's okay, no problem. I'm drinking water anyway while we... we don't have a lot of That's fine. <laughs> Guys, we don't have a lot of questions. If you have any questions about this, or <laughs> please go ahead. And otherwise, maybe I've filibustered you. This was a longer lecture again, and it was kind of fun to do. It's kind of in our um, wheelhouse of who was, you know, this kind of Bible figure. In a way, we got around. We got around by the end to who was uh, the historic Peter, um, and is there connections then between the the tradition that the historic Peter was the first bishop of Rome or not? Uh, the traditions, I think, just don't reach back enough. So Bob Garrison says, so the spot in St. Peter's Square where Peter was supposedly crucified might not be the actual place. What do historians think? So the answer to that is there's no um, no particular historical basis to that. So it's a traditional spot. Uh, that spot was identified maybe sometime in the second century, as early as sometime as the second century. So it's been a traditional spot for a whole long time. It's the um, uh, uh, it's the same as the it's the same as the as the Holy Sepulchre, Jesus's tomb in Jerusalem. So it's a very important ancient church, and it goes all the way back to the fourth century. But um, uh, but the chances that that is where Jesus' actual tomb is is, is effectively nil. Um, it's something that many centuries later people looked around and they said, oh, it must have been here, and it's not there. So the answer is that it's a traditional spot. It has imbued with um, lots of intentional, and um, uh, it, you, you, you experience the story there, but it is not, um, it's not a historic uh, identification. There's, I would say the most likely scenario is that, uh, that the historic Peter never went to Rome. Um, Secret, uh, Secret Asian Dan says, are popes actually crowned? Um, I guess maybe it's not called crowned in that way. I mean, I guess where the, the crowning, um, 
is somehow like is maybe the important thing of a of a of a secular king. Um, they do have crowns, and so they have um, a crown now that is a triple crown um, that was added to successively. Now, if you see the, like this giant pope hat, the crown, the papal crown that has the three uh, tiers to it, is something that developed again in the Middle Ages. It is built out of an original hat, which is a um, uh, a, a pagan Roman priest hat originally, um, I think where this originally comes from, and it's actually an imperial, it's modeled on the um, kind of a late imperial crown itself. So the papacy ha- takes over a lot of the, um, let's say, the kind of the royal trappings and things like that that had occurred for the imperial monarch. So essentially the popes in the West are the representatives of the uh, the Byzantine emperor for a whole long time, and that's where some of the um, some of the regalia develop. So they do have crowns. I think that probably the most important, um, I guess, probably the most important thing that happens is is the anointing. Um, I'd have to go through the entire ritual of how the how the popes are made and so forth. Uh, but they have crowns and they wear them. So maybe it's not being crowned pope, but it's um, I have to think. I have to, I have to look it up exactly how this ceremony works. Uh, Operation IV85 says, Center Place, do you envision any further schisms involving the Catholic Church in the future or even reunification among some combination of Catholic, Protestant, Eastern churches? So the, uh, the papacy has had for at least half a century pretty successful um, ecumenical outreach to Eastern churches, and so almost every um, almost every kind of Eastern tradition includes both a independent right and also a um, a right uh, where they're in union with Rome. And so, for example, there will be Ukrainian uh, an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and then there's also going to be a Catholic. Ukrainian Orthodox Church, where they really don't have any, I don't think they have to even have anything different. They can continue to have the entire um, Ukrainian rite and everything you're going to do in terms of all of your traditions and practices, but you just acknowledge that the Pope is the first among equals and so forth, and then you're in union with Rome. And so most of the Eastern churches have a division like that, where 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 they're in some kind of, there's a, a proportion of the believers who are in union with Rome and a portion who aren't. And so that is ongoing. Um, there are some other uh, reunifications that are working in terms of there are uh, understandings that the, the papacy can have in terms of priesthood practice and so forth with the Lutherans and with uh, other Protestants, Anglicans, and things. Are there any further schisms involving the Catholic Church in the future? It's, uh, it's difficult to say. Um, I, I, I think that the... Uh, the Catholic Church is a um, it's a very big tent church. Um, there are big divisions that are existing between um, the church in the developed world and the church in the developing world. Um, so how you know managing all of those is is always complex. Uh, certainly, the most recent Pope Francis, the current Pope, has is good at. Um, in my opinion, of, at making potentially kind of ambiguous statements where he tries to get people 
uh, away from hot button divisive topics and to not you know and to sort of calm down over them and things like that. So he's been pretty successful. Um, the his predecessor, John Paul II, um, really turned the uh, in a social sense really turned the church in a real hard right direction and his uh, shadow over the church in terms of having uh, like for example the, the the bishopric in the United States or people who are you know, in a lot of cases way way far right of their their um, their followers and so forth and have alienated uh, a lot of people so there's a so there's possibilities for it I'm not I'm don't I don't know for sure I don't I don't have a a sense of that as anything's on the horizon anytime uh, soon uh, uh, Donnie Lee Gringo, Leon, hi Leon, uh, says, is it fair to say then that the Roman Catholic Church claim to the papacy to Peter is based on Matthew's words of the rock? Um, it, it actually may not be fair to say that, Leon, because actually apparently that claim wasn't central um, necessarily very early on. It became, after the argument started happening, it became a major claim um, but maybe what, but it wasn't apparently an original claim, and, in the, and indeed some of the earliest church fathers who were interpreting um, that is more or less saying that the, the statement in Matthew here is not anything like, isn't actually about founding churches and so forth, but it is that uh, upon this rock, which is to say the rock of your faith, so it's a, it's a general statement about faith is the way a lot of people interpreted that. Uh, but over time, it became a it has become a papal claim. Certainly, when in the apologetic arguments that go back and forth between the papacy and um, and people who are arguing against papal primacy, whether it's the Eastern churches or the Protestant churches and so forth. Um, Jamie Lee says James Lee says, do you know of any other instances in scholarship where the criterion of embarrassment is Argued by historians. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a. I mean, I think that that's a fairly it's a fairly normal criterion to use. So it's one of the things that um, we have to do when we're reading into all sources. So um, so in a lot of cases, uh, uh, the criterion of embarrassment is useful when you have only positive sources, right? So there'll be some um, historical figures for whom, you know, or movements and things like that for whom we have only negative sources, right? And so, um, and so when we're learning about the, you know, now there's, now the sources have been uncovered for the Gnostics and things like that, but for, let's say, alternate Christianities like the Gnostics or the, uh, the Ebionites and so forth, we primarily have um, the writings of their antagonists. And so then we don't have to look for um, a criterion of embarrassment because uh, because those guys are looking for anything embarrassing about those guys. And so, in fact, when when your antagonists say things like about the Gnostics that you're just sexually depraved and that you you're having orgies all the time, um, that's that's something that they are kind of creating to embarrass you. And actually, we would probably correct it the opposite way. It turns out that actually. Um, Gnostics and things are are likely to more likely to be kind of ascetics who actually are opposed to sex at all because they don't want to uh, bring new uh, bodies into the world at all, right? And so, and so certainly that was true for like the Cathars who are also accused of orgies and things like that, even though they're likely practicing like abstinence. 
Um, and so for, so when you only have the antagonists, then you don't need the criterion of embarrassment, in other words. But if you only have sources that are positive, that's when we make use of that, right? So if you only have, um, some ancient king's, uh, court biography, then anything that, that you admit, <laughs> that that court biographer admits, uh, you know, like, oh, he massacred all these people, or whatever it is, you know, that, that they're trying to cover over, um, if they admit it, then that's that would be the criterion of embarrassment. And so a historian is more likely to credit that official biographer, even though they are biased in favor of the of the source. And so the reason why that's getting used a lot um, in the biblical studies is that for all of this early Christianity stuff, um, we mostly have Christian sources that are are very much um, apologetic already. And so then when they're saying things where they're apologizing for this. So when um you know so when in the in the uh in the gospels uh it you know it more or less says that that people are accusing Jesus of being a drunkard because and 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 asking why unlike John's followers why don't you why don't your followers fast? And then there's an apologetic statement where Jesus says the time for fasting is not now. When I when I'm gone, then you can fast. <laughs> so um, so it's it's essentially a an apologetic statement where people are were criticizing. People are aware. Christians are aware that the historical Jesus is being criticized for not fasting, right? And so uh, and so yeah, I think it's a fairly uh, normal term. So Miguel Angelo says. Is it possible that the name Peter Cephas was just a nickname unrelated to church hierarchy or theology and later reinterpreted as having a more important meaning? Absolutely. Um, so whereas the name Peter Cephas or whatever is um, multiply attested, right? So we have we have Paul who is using that nickname. So that's, it's clear that Peter's going by that name or Cephas is going by that name. Simon is going by this nickname. Um, and so, and so, um, why does he get that nickname though? <laughs> so it could be that the, um, that the gospel of Matthew, which says, which adds that extra stuff. I'm, I'm changing your name to Peter, but then I'm going to say, upon this rock, I'll build my church. That doesn't exist anywhere else. That is not multiply attested. That is only in Matthew. There is no other source for that. So there is no reason to, um, necessarily to associate a, uh, a historically um, given nickname that Jesus gave to this guy Simon, uh, with the idea that he's going to be the founder of a church. So, um, so the, those two are completely isolated. They're only connected in the in the one uh, uh, statement that is only attested in the in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so Kevin Hathaway says, could Linus have started the church in Rome? Uh, Linus, the son of Craticus, he is mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy. Um, so 1 Timothy is late. It's uh, one of the non, um, non-attested uh, works, you know, in other words, pseudepigraphical works that is, attested, that is uh, ascribed to Paul, um, where I would look for the person to have um, started the Roman church is we should probably the earliest sources we have on that is Paul's letter to the Romans. We could listen to look at those 50 people that he talks about, uh, including the apostles that he knows about who are, he cites as being in Rome. Um, 
and he and those would probably be the place to look for um, the founders among those. That's probably as best as we could have. So probably not. Um, so I know um, Linus. Is Linus also the one of the? Um, so there's there's between before we get to Clement the first there. Uh, I think Linus is the second. Is, it, is he the second pope that's on the on the list? That list is very late. So it probably um, the the Liber Pontificalis uh, is probably coming from uh, the time period of Jerome. And so it is, again, a, a late reconstruction trying to put that together. Um, Rowan Wagner says, could Peter ordain Clement Bishop of Rome? Not as a successor, but as the first Bishop of Rome. Um, so we don't have any evidence of that, uh, Rowan. Sure, anything could have happened, but we just don't, but we can't, with, when we're trying to make a history, um, uh, you know, what happened in history, uh, it, we have to have like a contemporary, some kind of contemporary evidence or claim that that is happening. So there are later traditions that suggest that, um, but they, it's surprising that they don't exist earlier when Clement is running around and writing. Um, Clement may not be wanting to mention that as a modest person, but um, no one else who is his contemporary is mentioning that either. It's a tradition that develops later. Uh, Dick McComb says, who traditionally followed Clement? So there is a, um, so we have a, um, a list of um, the popes that is developed that starts with Peter and, and so forth and gets to Clement and then goes on uh, called the Liber Pontificalis. Uh, a lot of people assume that the biographies of the early popes that are written there are written by St. Jerome in the 4th century or whenever he's active and that, um, and that unfortunately we don't know, you know what he, that was all based on. So there's possible that there is an early archival source and so forth. So following Clement, we're going to have better, um, you know, better evidence for them. But a lot of them are all just shadows, you know, at the very beginning, little more than names. Um, Daryl Scott, uh, compared to Catholics, how do the Orthodox view Peter? Um, I, th- I think that they view Peter fairly similar, um, and. Um, you know, the main question would be this, uh, you know, this question about, you know, primacy, right? And so they obviously are not going to emphasize that, um, you know, I give you the keys, I found this church upon you and so forth. Um, they would probably would have made, have those apologetic explanations that they're talking about. I'm going to build my church upon faith. The rock of faith is what they're saying, a kind of a universal statement, as opposed to, like I say, the, um, the Catholic apologetic, which is that that is a a, a, a narrative of Petrine authority. Uh, in general, the Orthodox uh, tradition also, um, you know, venerates Peter as, a, you know, leader of the apostles and so forth, and as an important saint and, and and all of that. And I think that they do associate him with Rome, and so that because uh, that's the tradition. So, but in general, it would just be, but everything short of then that he's. The leader, and that, uh, and that all of his successors have to be the leaders. They rather are, would be in favor of the idea always that all of the bishops were, um, you know, were always autonomous. And indeed, the Eastern churches, even though the uh, arch, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople, called the Ecumenical Patriarch, he nevertheless, among all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, still remains. Um, 
uh, first among equals, right? And so that's why all of the Eastern churches are all autocephalous. So there's the Greek Orthodox Church and and the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, which is now out of communion with the rest of them, but everybody else, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, the Serbian Orthodox Church, and so forth, everybody's got their own Orthodox Church because... Um, uh, because again, their uh, arguments about authority are nobody's in charge in that way, so everybody can have an autocephalous church. Oh, and thank you for your support, Daryl. Um, Miguel Angelo says, um, when did the idea of the Pope's infallibility in his decision start, and where did that come from? Um, so the the height of kind of papal pretense about that kind of thing, that the Pope is a sole authority and that uh, the Pope can, for example, depose kings and appoint new kings and so forth, but nobody can judge the Pope, that comes out of the Gregorian reform. Uh, there had been some you know, precedents that they were building on, but it is a um, document that occurs in the... Um, was that the 11th century, the, uh, around the time period of uh, Gregory the Seventh, uh, and he creates a document called uh, uh, the Dictatus Papi, the, the the sayings the sayings of the Pope or something like that, and they and they come up with a um, essentially a program of of papal authority that is new and is in a much more um, uh, expansive than anything that had ever existed before. And so that is um, the place where that comes from. Although, again, the, um, the, even so, even today, the idea of papal infallibility doesn't mean that every single thing that the Pope does is infallible, but only those things when he is speaking, specifically ex cathedra, that same word as cathedral. In other words, he's speaking from the seat of his cathedral, in other words, his throne. Uh, and when he's speaking ex cathedra, then his statement is infallible. Um, but that I don't even think has even happened in the last 200 years. <laughs> so in other words, even though um, even though the doctrine continues, I'm not sure that it's in practice. Uh, Mr. Valerai says, uh, "What? Why do you think there are so many conspiracies about the papacy propagated by many members of Protestant denominations? Uh, because people love conspiracies. <laughs> Conspiracy theories. Um, it is a." It is a plague of our time. People prefer to, uh, you know, there's a lot of real information. Real information is actually uh, endlessly fascinating, and there's an, an infinite amount of it. You can always read about it, and you'd find out, and it's really wonderful. Um, rather than find real information, people prefer to think that they have the pattern of the shortcut, the thing that nobody's ever heard of before. The popes are actually refugees from the lost city of Atlantis and whatever, you know, and they... they uh, they go ever secretly meet inside the pyramid of Giza and, and whatever. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to have these kind of. And why do they do it? So it's a. There has been a major. There have been major wars of religion. There is an underlying. Um, you know, Protestants and Catholics killed each other in huge numbers. Uh, um, part of that division involved uh, dehumanizing the other. There is a huge tradition uh, in back and forth between Protestants and Catholics. You know, we're kind of on the other side of it a little bit now, but um, uh, it was pretty serious in my lifetime even still, and, but um, certainly more serious a couple hundred, couple hundred years ago. And so, um, and so I think that uh, that's why. <laughs> so people are like that. 
Uh, Data 10 asks, um, does not history seem to suggest that James, the brother of Jesus, had primacy over Peter in leading the non-Pauline church? And the answer to that is yes. So the um, both the indications essentially in Paul's writings are that you know when he is having this um, fight with the non-Pauline people, the, the circumcision um, uh, faction that he calls them, um, that in fact the person who's in charge when he goes to Jerusalem is James, the brother of Jesus, and later Peter, who is um, essentially coming as a, an apostle to the Christian community in Antioch, um, that he is pretty much in line with, willing to be in line with Paul and his group until, uh, again, um, messengers or legates from James from Jerusalem came, and then Peter betrays Paul and switches and so forth and causes uh, faction. So it does seem like James, the brother of Jesus, is in fact um, the leader of the church and not Peter. So that the idea that Peter is the leader is a later tradition that develops. Apollonia says, um, so in the Gospel of John 21, 15 to 21, when was Jesus referring to Paul as a pillar in the church in Jerusalem instead of in Rome? Uh, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, and so forth. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know that he's calling out, I'd have to now get that ver- those verses exactly in terms of that. So that's part of the, um, you know, the additional uh, writing. So that is the after the original book of John or the John 1 writer has finished writing, uh, John 2, an additional editor and redactor has come on and tacked on this additional part or ending, uh, including the uh, the call to feeder, Peter to feed my sheep and so forth. I don't think that it specifies though, go to Rome to feed my sheep, right? So I will. We'd have to look at it, but I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that it is a general. Um, you know, it is it is definitely a reflecting Peter Petrine leadership, right? So it is um, emphasizing Peter, who gets emphasized a lot in the Gospel of John, the last of the Gospels in terms of the canon. Um, he's second only to the beloved disciple in that narrative. Um, but, um, but and, so he, and so they're aware of an emerging tradition of Peter as the leader, but not necessarily in Rome. Tolkien study says, where does um, first among equals come from? Um, primus inter pares um, actually comes from uh, Augustus. So the emperor, the first Roman emperor, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, um, in order to disguise um, his total authority and, and dictatorship, essentially his new monarchy, we, we call him emperor. An emperor we think of as a super king. Um, the word emperor just meant general at the time. And, uh, and, and Augustus made it very clear you know, uh, I may well be the, you know, you can give me all these titles like uh, the August one, like the, the father of his father, of the fatherland and so forth, but I'm just a, I'm just a senator like the rest of you. I am just the first among equals. I'm the princeps, you know, the prince, which is where we also get the word prince, um, then later from, from the, from that leader. So, um, so I think that that's, uh, maybe where it comes from, uh, as an example in the preceding century, but then, um, uh, the popes kind of start asserting that right away. <laughs> so like I say, Clement is, uh, whether or not he's, he doesn't think he has the phrase first among equals, but he definitely um, feels like he's, as the 
essentially the bishop of the uh, the congregation in the capital. This, you know, of the uh, he's able to um, you know give advice or make proclamations to the other uh, churches when they're in disorder. Anyway, uh, Bob Garrison says, with um, all of the history of European popes, is it possible the next pope could be Asian? Um, I don't know. I, I, I would think that, um, you know, so, so the very first time, you know, Francis, who is Pope now, is the very first time there was a Pope from the Western Hemisphere and from the Southern Hemisphere, right? So everybody else had always been European or from the Roman Empire, so North African, you know, back when it was uh, Roman and so forth, and, you know, Asia in terms of the... Um, you know, the Mediterranean area. That's where they've all been from before. So in other words, there's been popes from Asia before, but they're from Syria, right? Uh, when the Roman Empire had was included Syria. Um, but um, in terms of East Asia, you're probably thinking, or South Asia, um, I would say it's very unlikely that the next pope would be East Asian or South Asian. Um, probably, uh, probably Africa soon, before then. But anyway, um, you know, there's definitely going to be a lot of pressure uh, there's definitely a lot of pressure on those cardinals that it's not an Italian. <laughs> the reason why they picked Francis was because, yeah, so Francis is in fact a Italian Argentinian. The reason I knew they were going to pick Francis because because I knew they were going to have so much pressure to not pick an Italian, but they only want to pick Italians, uh, and so and so they got to pick an Italian who is from Argentina. In other words, so that and so they were able to get that to work out. And so um, so yeah, they. The cardinals are going to want an Italian, <laughs> you know, but they're going to be under so much pressure not to do that that they're going to pick somebody. But you know, who who knows who what what it's going to be? I'm, I'm not. Um, uh, so, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a very wonderful discussion. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I think that we've got a whole bunch of exciting uh, ones in the in the works. And so next week, like I say, we will talk about one of the most important texts texts left out of the New Testament. Uh, Lost New Testament, uh, the Didache.